listening to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast with your hosts, John and Darren. Welcome to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. I'm your host, John, and I'm here with my co-host, Darren. And for today's episode, we are discussing Ozzy Osbourne's second album, Diary of a Madman. Released on November 7th, 1981, the album would build on the momentum and success of Ozzy's first album, Blizzard of Oz, with hits like Flying High Again and the epic title track. Contrary to what the liner notes on the album would say, Bob Daisley and Lee Kerslake would play on the album and both be instrumental in the songwriting process. Don Airy would be credited, but not play on the record. Instead, Johnny Cook would play keyboards for the album. Before the American tour would commence, Bob and Lee would be unceremoniously sacked from the band and replaced by Rudy Sarzo on bass and Tommy Aldridge on drums. The album and tour would be a massive success, but tragedy would strike on March 19th, 1982, when Randy Rhodes would be killed in an airplane accident in Florida. Bernie Torme first, then Brad Gillis would do the impossible and take the guitar slot to finish out the tour. All right, Darren, we're here on Ozzy's second solo album. What's your, what's your memories and thoughts on Diary of a Madman? Yeah, this is a real milestone. Um, you know, we talked about Blizzard of Oz and the impression it, it made on us and a lot of memories, a lot of background on, on those albums. And it continues into this almost seamlessly. Um, so, you know, the Blizzard of Oz album was originally released in the UK in 1980, but it wasn't released stateside until I think April 1981. I forget the exact date. And that's around the time that I got Blizzard of Oz. So... As I was getting into that and getting more into Ozzy and reading things in magazines and so on and so forth, it seemed like just a short time later that Diary of a Madman came out. And I remember becoming aware of its release when I was listening to the radio and there was a radio spot and I've never been able to find it. Sometimes you can find things like that on YouTube, but I've never been able to find it. But I remember it was somebody with, it was like an impersonation, uh, Boris Karloff uh, impersonation saying something like once upon a midnight dreary while I pondered Ozzy's diary. And it was like a, you could hear some of the music from diary in the background, but uh, it was uh, an advert for diary of a madman. So I was, got excited and I could hear some of the music and I, I couldn't wait to go to the record store and see if they had it. The next time I went to the record store, sure enough, there it was. And of course, you know, looking at the album cover, I mean, everything that Blizzard of Oz was as far as like all the imagery and atmosphere. I mean, this one went way over the top, whereas Blizzard, you could say was probably a bit more on the subtle side. This was <laughs> this was way more over the top. Ozzy looking like Linda Blair from The Exorcist. Uh, clearly one of his stage, wearing one of his stage outfits all torn up and bloodied and he was inside what looks like some sort of a castle with an upside down cross on the wall and a black cat in the window and a little boy who we would later find out was his son, Lewis, crouched in the corner next to a table with cobwebs. Um, so following off a similar motif of Blizzard of Oz was a lot of, you know, it was a photograph with a lot of imagery and, and whatnot. Uh, 
this one took it to the next level. So right off the bat, you know that this is going to be a pretty exciting record. And it was upon first spin, hearing the, you know, the, the triplets leak, curse lakes, drum triplets, you know, starting the song off and then Randy's guitar. And I guess one of the things that I noticed right off the bat was that the production seemed bigger. It seemed like it was just a bit louder to my inexperienced ears even then I, I could hear there was a difference in the way that the album sounded it was just sounded like a, a bigger production and um, really satisfied what I had hoped to hear on a second or on another Ozzy Osbourne record I was absolutely uh, delighted pleased excited all those things and uh, incidentally, it would be my first ever rock concert, seeing Ozzy on the Diary of a Madman tour. Now, it was like pulling teeth trying to get my parents to let me go, but eventually they did. And I went with a friend of mine from school and my mom drove us and everything that, you know, I was only 12, 12 or 13, I guess. So it was everything that you would expect the kind of supervision for a 13 year old to be uh and 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 rightfully so uh but just to go off on a slight tangent here it, it being my first concert i mean i was not <laughs> i'd heard about friends and and you know older relatives uncles and 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 so on talking about concerts they had been to and things like that and i'd heard stories about some things breaking rowdy I think there was some incident at an Aerosmith concert that recently happened when somebody threw a cherry bomb or something on stage and or bottles or things like that. So my relatives are warning me, you know, this could be a rowdy concert. There could be big people are known to throw bottles and break rowdy at these things. So, you know, okay. I was a little bit cautious. Uh, there wasn't any of that, but man, there was definitely a cast of characters at that concert. My, <laughs> We were sitting, I think we had like first first level seats at the Philadelphia Spectrum. So we had good seats. They weren't they weren't great, but they, they were good. Uh, but originally we tried to go to the concert, which I think was scheduled, I think the tour started in January. So by the time that, if it ran under the normal itinerary, I think it was supposed to be in March in Philly. And of course that was, that was postponed and it wasn't rescheduled until April. And of course, that was after Randy died. And, and I saw the concert that I saw was with Brad Gillis, one of the first shows of Brad Gillis. But anyway, so so being there, uh, you know, I was prepared for the violence that might occur, but I wasn't really necessarily prepared for the for the comic side of things. And, and there was plenty of it. I mean, it was the first time I ever smelled some of the concert odors. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Sure. <laughs> And the people there that just look like uh, like Newton City or something. But man, there was this one guy um, in the middle. The, the Philadelphia Spectrum was was basically an arena, and there was an oval, and you go around the outside, and all the refreshments and the merch and everything were off to the side. But it was like just a round oval, and you would just walk around that until you found your section, and you'd go down the steps and sit there. So we passed this guy and he had his face painted. I'd be like blood on his fake vampire blood or something. And he looked like he was on something. We passed him a couple times and we laughed and said, oh, that guy's crazy, blah, blah, blah. I went in, watched the concert. Of course, it was uh, Magnum, a band from the UK that opened up that we weren't really familiar with. They were okay. Uh, UFO then played and vaguely familiar with UFO. At least we've heard some songs, you know, Lights Out. 
and whatnot. So we were, we were interested in seeing them. They didn't disappoint. Um, and then of course, Ozzy came out with the full, you know, the stage show, the castles, the intro song was a commit, commit, Carmina Burana. Carmina Burana. Yeah. Yeah, that got the blood flowing. And then, you know, you, the lights were on the chair and then the flash bomb goes off and Ozzy rolls out of the chair and he's holding the cross and slams the cross on the ground. And, you know, it was just like, wow, just utterly amazing. So through all that, after that was over, we're walking, or actually before the concert was over, went out to get a T-shirt and had some cool T-shirts. even had a Randy Rhodes T-shirt. And I wanted to buy it and I got the executioner one, you know, the iconic uh-huh. executioner holding up. I got that one instead. I should have gotten the Randy one, but it'll be one of those things that'll haunt me forever. Cause I think they've done reprints on all those songs, all, all those shirts from that tour, except for the Randy Rhodes. But anyway, so walking around, uh, when I went out to buy a t-shirt, that same guy with like the vampire board <laughs> was like, he had a crowd of people around. He was on the ground. He was rolling around. He got up and his hair was all goofed up. And he's like, yeah, I lost my jacket. I throw my, threw my jacket on stage, man. I'm going to be cold, but I still got Ozzy. <laughs> I, the words still echo in my brain to this day. And I can still see it. It was, I was just like, I was amused, uh, frightened, shocked, everything. I had never seen anything like that before, but. I was like, wow, people really do get crazy at these concerts. And then, of course, from that point on, I'd go to every concert I could, you know, anything that came around from that point on, it was like I was I was into it. But that was my first experience with rock and roll concert, heavy metal concert, whatever you want to call it. And it was for Diary of a Madman. So, I mean, I guess that's like seeing Ozzy's the first concert definitely not dipping your toe in the water that's like diving into the deep end I think pretty much for, for 1982 um, but anyway that you know that, that contributes to my overall uh, impressions of Diary of a Madman the, the concert experience the experience of getting the record and listening to it for the first time and and I it's one of those records and I'm sure you'll agree that we never get tired of yeah um, I've listened to it more times than I could possibly count, but I still, I still really enjoy listening to it. And uh, a friend of mine, Mike Smith, got me the uh, shout out to Mike Smith, got me this uh, Japanese pressing with the OB strip. And even after all these years listening to it in a different uh, pressing, early pressing, you know, different, uh, different country, it, it sounds a little different. And I still enjoy the album. Uh, still one of my one of my all-time favorite records definitely probably if it's not in my top five it's definitely in my top 10 i'd say yeah uh for me too definitely a a high ranking album uh like you mentioned i i was the same i had blizzard of oz was totally into blizzard of oz and I'm, i'm glad you mentioned this that now, in the U.S., Blizzard of Oz was released in April, and then uh, Diary showed up six months later. And there's sort of a misconception that Diary and Blizzard were recorded r- exceptionally close to each other, and they weren't. They were basically went into the studio a year apart, yeah. which back then was the norm. You basically released an album a year. But to us over here in the States... The UK had had Blizzard of Oz for six months before us. So here we didn't. So it seemed like Diary of a Madman just 
you know, came out right after Blizzard of Oz, which in some ways it did. And for me, the first time I heard it was I used to listen to uh, our local classic rock station, Rock 107 out of Scranton. Shout out to Scranton. Uh, used to do these things called Rock Blocks at night where they would play three songs from an artist. And it used to happen late at night. And that's how I remember it. Of course, as an 11-year-old, late at night was probably like nine o'clock. But anyways, it was after I was supposed to be in bed. That's all I remember. And I would put the headphones on and they would always tell you in advance, like tonight, we're going to do a rock block from Ozzy Osbourne and then we're going to do a Led Zeppelin rock block. So, so I knew there was one coming up and I wanted to stay up and listen anyways, even though I had Blizzard Boz. So they played two songs from Blizzard, probably you know, Crazy Train and maybe I Don't Know or something. And then they played the song Diary of a Madman. And this is one of those... Uh, when I think back to my musical life, there's certain moments that are snapshots frozen in time. And uh, this is one of them. I can picture myself sitting on the floor with the headphones on, lights out in my room because I was supposed to be asleep. Only the, only the warm glow of my stereo, you know, in the, in the background. I remember those times, yeah. And uh, man, Diary of a Madman, hearing that, classical guitar intro the vibe of the whole song and when when the end of the song kicked in with the choir I was just absolutely blown away and then the song ended and the DJ was like that was from Ozzy Osbourne's brand new album the title track Diary of a Madman and I was just like whoa and I had to have it and I mentioned this uh, when we spoke about Blizzard Boz that a lot of the things that I like to this day, the things that when I hear them or see them, they get my heart going, beating faster, album covers with, with uh, a smoke machine, uh, bells in a song, classical guitar intros. Well, here, Diary of a Madman then added the choir thing. And to this day, the song Diary of a Madman is one of my all-time favorite, in my opinion, one of the greatest heavy metal songs ever written. I just absolutely love it. I think it's just amazing. And the whole vibe of the record, it felt like a little bit of a, it was a continuation of Blizzard of Oz, but it was a step forward. The album cover had the same kind of feel to it for me. Just Ozzy on the cover, some smoke, uh, you know, sort of a creepy occultish uh, vibe to the, to the cover. The mix of the record, too, I felt had a little bit more depth to it. It was a little bit more roomy and reverby, whereas uh, Blizzard of Oz felt a little bit dry. Uh, not that that was a bad thing, but compared to Blizzard of Oz, I just remember thinking like yeah. it sounded a little bit more open, a little bit more warmer. And uh, man, what can I say about it? It's just I, I love every song on it. Uh, I mean, we're going to we're going to get into the songs but I was just, I was so into it and uh, I loved Blizzard of Oz so much. And here, this was just part two. I loved Randy. I loved the whole band. Uh, Ozzy just sounded amazing to me. It just everything about it was, was just perfect. And I was so excited about it that, uh, you know, it was just, it was, it was really special. And then when I did finally get it and, 
the opening, you know, drum intro to Over the Mountain. And it's just, uh, it's just right in there, man. And it's just, it's got everything. It's got the ballad tonight. It's got the Believer, the darker ones, Believer and SATO, the title, amazing title track. Uh, just, just a fantastic, you know, just a fantastic record that stood the test of time and incredibly well. I mean, I can still listen to it. Like you mentioned, I, I still put it on. And yeah, if I were to break down the albums, it was a way for me to, to, to figure out, go back into the database of my brain and data mine and see what records I've listened to the most in my life. This is this has got to be up there in the top five or like you said, top 10 at the minimum. So just an absolutely amazing record. And Ozzy at this point too, the thing is with Blizzard, I want to say he was unknown, but he was kind of unknown. And with Diary of a Madman, he had already established himself. Crazy Train was getting played on the radio a lot. And you would hear Goodbye to Romance. You would hear Mr. Crowley. So when Diary came out, the legend had really been born of Ozzy, the madman. You know, again, this tied into it. I remember the parents being scared, look at that album cover, you know, it's scary. And Ozzy, this is when the, the whole uh, Ozzy Osbourne persona really just really sort of come, totally comes together here. He's at the zenith of the Ozzy, the madman. It's, it's just really, the ball is getting rolling here. And it's something that, it's a crazy train that Ozzy would ride for, for quite some time, but here it was really, exploding and i know it's for the younger audience out there it's it's hard to imagine this because ozzy is such a household name at this point but at this point in time ozzy was about as dangerous as it got uh, he was scaring parents like nobody nobody else at this time so great album fond very fond memories of hearing it for the first time still love it to this day yeah, yeah. Uh, everything that you, you said about the Ozzy reputation and the uh, the the legend, I guess, was all established in and around. I think about the time that they started the first U.S. tour, um, January until March. Most of all these things, these notorious incidents, happened between January and March. Everything that would set the course for the years that would follow within these three months was it was concentrated. We had the Dove incident right before um, the band went on tour in the U.S. Shortly after Rudy and, and Tommy Aldridge were in the band, the, the press conference um, for CBS Records where Ozzy uh, was supposed to go in with the doves and 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 let the doves fly and make a beautiful appearance, but they somehow got shafted because they were directed into a smaller room because Adam Ant was having a record release party at the time, and of course Ozzy was loaded. So when he was told that they had to go into a smaller room, he was kind of disgruntled by that, and he had these these birds in his jacket, and then. Went into a smaller room, sat down, and uh, no one was really interested. They were kind of ignoring him. And then Sharon said, to, you know, that he should talk to this woman. He started talking to her. She seemed bored. 
So then Ozzy figured, well, I'm going to pull one of these birds out and bite its head off. And, and he did. <laughs> and then the, the dynamic completely changed. Everybody was running out of the room. The woman that was sitting next to ran out and called for security. They escorted Ozzy out. And that was the start of some of these things that were happening that were building the hype with the album. And it was actually, I don't know if it was planned. It, it certainly doesn't seem to be, but you couldn't have planned it any better because, I mean, with the Dove incident, it was right before the album Diary of a Madman came out. And, uh, but it was right about the time they were starting the U.S. tour. They had Rudy and they had Tommy in the band and they were, you know, doing rehearsals. And this is around the time that Rudy had only been with the band for maybe a couple of weeks or something. So they, this was like what was starting the hype rolling for people to come out and check them out live. Like, you know, this was the first incident. And of course, after that in Des Moines, we had the, the bat biting incident that was just, that was blown way way up in the, in the media you know i mean there i when i saw them there were parking lot t-shirts that said the mad there was like the diary of a madman cover on the front and on the back it had some really bad artwork and it had like a, a headless bat saying there, laying there and it said the madman bites the bat so <laughs> now this was so we, we you, you could basically say that you had something an incident that occurred before the tour to get the hype machine rolling something that happened around the middle, which was the bat biting incident, and something that happened a little bit later than that, which I think was the Alamo. Was the Alamo yeah. before or after? I think the Alamo was after. Yeah, the Alamo, I believe, was after. And that got a lot of hype, too. Uh, of course, it wasn't as, you know, dangerous or as creepy as the, the dove and the bat incident, but uh, it, it got a lot of hype, too. And, of course, the final, no pun intended, or anything the nail in the coffin was of course the passing of randy rhodes so there was a lot there was a lot to uh unpack in around this time from january to march and it was all around the time that this album was really just starting to to pick up steam and that they were on tour for it so then they, they started the tour before the album was released but by the time the album was released some of these things these stunts were already taking place so it all worked and perfect synchronicity to build this album into this dangerous, you know, unprecedented uh, shock rock kind of a Aussie persona that I don't think it was his, his intention to originally start out with, but worked into that and it, it worked really worked out really well for him. Because following on the heels of Alice Cooper, he was like this, the, the new dangerous rock star of course there will be many more to follow after that but it was ozzy's turn and it was effective and it drew more people to to what he was doing and to buy the records and to uh you know become interested in ozzy yeah and, and in the days before the internet you have to remember that uh, things had a way of uh, spreading and growing and taking on stories took yeah. on a life of their own. And that's, that's sure. really what happened with, with a lot of these things. And there's, you know, back then any kind of publicity you could get, and I'm sure that they just, you know, they, they ran with this and it's something to this day, you know, Ozzy still uses bats as a, you know, yeah. as merchandising and stuff like yeah. it's something that he's just associated with now, but we should mention, uh, we had talked about, uh, you know, we've mentioned Rudy Sarzo and Tommy Aldridge, and 
So what happened with this record is uh, if you got Diary of a Madman, the, uh, on the back, it lists Tommy Aldridge on drums and Rudy Sarsgo on bass. And on the inner sleeve of the record, the picture of the band is uh, Ozzy, Randy, Rudy, and Tommy sitting on the steps uh, outside the, uh, what do they call that? The Magic Castle yeah, Disney in World. Disney, Disneyland in California. Disney. And uh, so what, what, as the story goes, what, what happens is, is that uh, at this point now, Sharon Osborne is officially Ozzy's manager. Not yet. Not yet. I, I was just reading today that Bob, this, at least this is what Bob says. Bob says that during the Blizzard of Oz period, it was uh, Don's son that David. was handling them. And he said that Sharon came in right before this American tour where Don's son was dealing with something else and didn't want to deal with it. So it got given to, to Sharon. And that's when the issue started with Lee. Lee was sacked first. Now there's all kinds of different stories about why this, this happened. Bob supposedly objects to this. Supposedly, I think, too, they had maybe said something about they were playing some double shows. And uh, Bob and Lee said, you know, we can't be doing these two shows in one day. It's killing Ozzy's voice. Sharon tells it that they were demanding more money. Either way, Lee gets, Lee gets fired. Uh, Bob then objects and then he gets fired. And in comes Rudy Sarzo and Tommy Aldridge. But Bob and Lee were actively involved in the Diary of a Madman album. At this point, we mentioned in the podcast for Blizzard of Oz that Lee came in uh, pretty late into the writing process for Blizzard. But Lee was here from the beginning of the Diary of a Madman writing sessions because he had been in the band since Blizzard came out. So Lee was involved in writing. Uh, Bob, of course, was involved very much so in the writing, just like he was on Blizzard. In fact, uh, you can hear Bob just recently posted something of Bob Lee and Randy working on Flying High again with Lee singing singing kind of a, you know, uh, placeholder melody, if you will. Uh, and supposedly that's how they worked up Diary of a Madman. That's how they worked up, uh, I think, Over the Mountain and Flying High again, like I mentioned. So both these guys were very involved in this record. And this would start off this chain of events with them uh, going to court with the Osbournes for years and years and years uh, due to unpaid royalties, but it all sort of gets started here. And again, before the internet, for the long, I don't, I don't think I knew that Bob and Lee were on that record until like way after I had the album. For the longest time, I thought it was Rudy and Tommy because their name's on the record, they're pictured on the record. And, you know, how were you supposed to know back then? <laughs> So that's sort of the, you know, the, the slightly confusing, depending on whose side of the story you, you read, who is involved, who's to blame and all this stuff. But that's that's sort of a, a brief summary of, of why 
Tommy and Rudy are on the cover, even though they didn't play on the record. It should also be noted that Rudy Sarzo is a friend of Randy's. Rudy Sarzo played with Quiet Riot. This is the 70s version of Quiet Riot when Randy was in the band. And Randy leaves, he joins Ozzy, they need a bass player. And Randy, you know, says, hey, I know this guy and I use friends and everything. And so Rudy, Rudy's a great bass player. So Rudy gets, Rudy gets the gig. And Tommy Aldridge was somebody that Ozzy supposedly always loved and always wanted in the band. So, yeah, so, right. So, but get, getting back to the management thing, Don Arden was, was managing Ozzy up until after diary and this is coming from bob because when it gets into the legal thing originally the legal thing started between bob and lee and don arden and ozzy well most importantly sharon helped them in the lawsuit against don arden that's what the original thing was see contracts weren't they were always told that they were working on the contracts they're 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 finishing the contracts, but they never saw the contracts. So then it got to the point where it was around the time they were recording, and this is as per Bob Daisley, this isn't up from his, his book for fact's sake, this isn't an interview he did, I just re recently read the other night with Jeb Wilson. Uh, so the, the, the strange thing about it was their lawsuit was originally with Don Arden and, uh, and Sharon help them with some of the evidence that they needed to submit in court in the lawsuit against Don Arden. And they won. And then Don, they were getting royalties up to a point. When the management contract shifted from Don to Sharon, ironically, she then cut them out of the royalties. So now they had to go and they were suing Sharon Osborne. And then Don Arden helped them because Sharon and her father, Don, were in this 25-year feud that I think lasted up until sometime right before the release of Bark at the Moon. But during this time, they were enemies. So now Bob and Lee had to go back into court to get royalties. They were getting royalties because they won in court from Don Arden. But now once Sharon took over management, they, were getting, they weren't getting their royalties. It stopped and the contract went, went from one hand to the other their, their royalties stopped. So now they, they, again, they tried to work it out. And of course, the, Sharon was resistant. They had to go to court. Now, Don was helping them in their case against Sharon. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I, I'm surprised you didn't see that. I, I thought that was the, the most, that was really funny that, you know, the Osbournes just couldn't get their thing together. You know, it was like, Don is against Sharon and Sharon's against Don. And meanwhile, these two poor guys are like <laughs> stuck in the middle trying to get what's, what's, you know, so rightfully owed to them. It, it really is a shame. And, and I know fans get really, you know, um, uh, excited about it too. And a lot, you know, you read on a lot of forums and, and, you know, social media posts where people like get really defensive about Bob Daisley and Lee Kerslick and rightfully so they, it did a lot of work, most especially Bob Daisley. But, you know, we've gone into that when we were talking about Blizzard of Oz. And, and that really, it, was, it, was, it wasn't it was Lee Kerslick and Bob Daisley that sold the records. It was Ozzy's voice. It was Ozzy, the former singer of Black Sabbath, who was, you know, originally set out to do a band, but it became a solo thing. And that was more probably the best idea from a marketing standpoint. But nevertheless, the amount of work that Bob and Lee put into 
the band on these first two albums was profound. I mean, it, these albums wouldn't have sounded like this. We wouldn't have had the lyrics that we had. We wouldn't have had the arrangements. And Bob openly admits that it, it, he doesn't, even though he he does take ownership of everything that he did, and he's he's very upfront about it. You know, he'll tell you, "Oh, that was my song title. Those were my melodies. Those are my lyrics." What he doesn't deny, though, is that there was a chemistry between those four members of the band, that everybody did bring something in, even though maybe his contribution was was more, it still probably wouldn't have turned out the way that it did if it wasn't for, for Randy and even Ozzy. Ozzy bringing in some of the, when they were jamming things out, some of the riffs and stuff, when they were jamming that stuff out, Ozzy coming in with the melodies and then Bob going back and writing lyrics around Ozzy's melodies. Ozzy didn't write lyrics, you know. Occasionally he might throw a word or a phrase or something in, but generally he wasn't the lyricist. Back in Sabbath, of course, we all know that it was Geezer that wrote the lyrics. In the Ozzy Osbourne band, the Blizzard of Oz, it was Bob Daisley. But mostly they were inspired by Ozzy's when they were rehearsing and they were writing these songs together. A lot of it was inspired by Ozzy's melodies. Uh, and so the, Bob and Lee getting fired from the band. Yeah, like you described, they they got sacked and then they brought in these two other guys. But they Sharon originally approached Bob. They wanted Bob to back them up to get rid of Lee. And, and he was asked a few times and he said no every time. He said that he felt that there was a chemistry in the band with these members. Uh, there wasn't any reason to fire him. He uses the phrase, if something isn't broken, there's no reason to fix it. So he he wouldn't back them up. And so uh, they wanted to bring Tommy Aldridge in because Tommy Aldridge was Ozzy's first choice for drummer, but wasn't available at the time. I guess he was playing with Pat Travers. And po possibly at that time, the gig with Pat Travers was more lucrative than playing in the, the newly formed Ozzy Osbourne band was. But after, of course, the success of Blizzard of Oz and things started to move along and maybe things weren't quite as uh, lucrative in the Pat Travers band, Tommy Aldridge did turn to the Ozzy management who had contacted him before. He then contacted them and asked if the gig was still available. And they said, well, it can be. Or I think they pretty much assured him that it would be. So upon that, Sharon went to basically set about firing Lee to make room for Tommy and Bob wouldn't agree. So they were both gone. Six weeks later, though, they called Bob Daisley and asked him to come back. <laughs> and throughout all of this, when you're talking about the legal hassles and, and the dirty deals that went down, Bob still came back. And you have to say, why on earth would this guy come back into this situation? It's like a nightmare. He openly admits you know, everybody on my side of the camp was like, you've got to be crazy. I would tell them to F off. He's like, but the truth of the matter is, I like making music with Ozzy. I like Ozzy as a person. Uh, and that's the that's the conundrum here is that I, I we make good music together. I can work with him as a person. You know, I, I have a good time with him. I And I think regardless of how the money was doled out and 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 anything that was an obstacle between him and the money, I think eventually would work out. Um, I think he knew a little bit more at this point. I'm sure he did. And 
I think that he just basically took a cash settlement ahead of the game, uh, you know, for Barker to Moon. And he just, and I think he advised Jake to do the same. Look, just get paid. Just tell him how, how much you want to get paid, get the money, do the work. And then, you know, don't worry about getting royalties or anything like that. Just get the money up front. And I, I'm pretty sure that's what, that's how Bob did it. And I think that's what he advised Jakey Lee to do. And I think Jake did it too. But anyway, yeah. So, so Lee and Bob were out. Tommy Aldridge and Rudy Sarzo are, are in. Not to you know reiterate everything you said, but this is a band that now is going to represent the Ozzy Osbourne these two albums for the first time in the U.S. And so they start to tour before Diary of a Madman comes out, and they're basically supporting Blizzard of Oz, but adding I think it was. Uh, over the Mount, no, I think it was Believer and Flying High again were the first two songs that they were playing from Diary before they released, actually released Diary of a Madman during the Blizzard of Oz tour. But um, yeah, I mean, like you, when I opened up the album and I saw these these guys sitting on the steps of the, well, I didn't know it was Disneyland at the time. I thought it was probably some, you know, fantastic mythological place in rock and roll heaven or something. You medieval know. castle. Yeah. Outside you know. the medieval castle they recorded the album at. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Wow. Little did they know it's Disneyland. And actually, That's I think there's a, I've seen a bigger <laughs> version of that picture, yeah. the non-cropped version of that picture. And you can see like people walking around with Mickey Mouse on, uh, you know, balloons and yeah. You know, holding their kids' hands on the outside of the outside of the picture. You know, they wisely cropped that out because it would sort of take away from the uh, the vibe of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And there's there a whole photo session I think that took place. There's one of them lined up in a hallway looking at an aquarium or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going down a uh, an escalator. Yeah, I think yeah. They're, they're on an escalator or something. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, and. When you think back, it's like, well, you know what you know now when you look back on that. And it's like, it's really cringy. It's like, how can somebody, how can somebody do that when these guys, and like you said, that clip that came out fairly recently of, of the Bob and Lee and, and Randy jamming out what would become Flying High again. And you could hear Lee singing basically the melody and you could hear the song coming together. And it's like, how can you cut these guys out? How can you just remove them from the equation and put these you know other two guys that didn't even play on the album um pretty ruthless but when you consider the background i mean you know don arden was like he was like a gangster man he was he was like bad bad news he was like one of those you know break you bust your kneecaps kind of yeah yeah reputation i think he yeah yeah, I think he even like was. I, I heard recently that he worked or was mentored by the Cray brothers, the notorious Cray brothers. So, I mean, you're going from that sort of way. He was an old school 70s manager, a la Peter Grant, you know, style. Uh, Led Zeppelin's manager, Peter Grant, that he mm -hmm. was sort of wasn't afraid to use some muscle if he needed to for, you know, yeah, for his bands. Yeah. But, and so, you know, I mean, that's you know that's where Sharon got that's where she learned her chops basically and I mean the big the big bands on on Jet Records were what ELO, Air Supply, who else? Some other innocuous band. Was, I mean, there was other, there was some hard rock bands. I mean Widowmaker, which was where 
where Bob came yeah. from, his band was on um, Jet, on yeah. Jet and Girl. Phil Lewis would later be in L.A. Guns. Uh, Phil Collins was also in there. Not Phil Collins from Genesis, but Phil Collins that would later uh, be in Def Leppard. Both those musicians were in the band Girl who were signed to, to Jet Records. So um, Jet Records was like an up-and-coming label that was owned by Don Arden. You know, he ran that, I guess, like he ran his management. Right? Unorthodox... Uh, bully mentality and then carried over into to how Sharon would, would run things but no it's still initially uh during the, the beginning of well she became romantically involved with Ozzy around the time of Blizzard let's say but Ozzy was still married to his first wife Thelma but of course Sharon was there protecting her father's investment checking in on Ozzy and then as things progressed they worked up a relationship which became pretty intense by around the time that we're talking about here with the release of, of diary but don arden was still technically the manager i guess david arden was was doing a lot of stuff david arden was mostly involved with the band during the blizzard of oz thing with sharon kind of peeking in and and hanging out but but ozzy's wife was just as much if not more involved than, than sharon was during the blizzard of oz time but then they started having problems and then sharon comes in by the time that the diary comes full swing date uh, don basically signed everything over to her but she was still she I, I think the way that the arrangement was was don was the head manager sharon was managing the day-to-day -day things according to how bob explains it sharon was there she was more present now during this, this this time when they were recording and preparing things and that carried over into the rudy sars or tommy aldridge era where sharon was managing the day-to-day -day things but don arden was still the overall manager but then that would shift over by the time the tour was in full swing and it would all become become sharon which incidentally was around the time that the contract was renegotiated and bob and lee stopped getting their royalties and they had to go back to court yeah. and we settle that with don arden's help so the whole thing was just a big cluster it was just a big mess but and you got to feel bad for those guys but i guess on the upshot the good thing that came out of it were these two records which you know i don't think anybody can deny that they are they are definitely legendary yeah, this uh, we mentioned this in the Blizzard episode that this period of Ozzy, 79 to like 81, 82, is really it depends on who you talk to or who, who you read, you know, quotes from about what was actually going down. I, I just double checked where if you look at Wikipedia, which is where I saw this quote from Lee that Sharon was managing them during Diary of a Madman, he probably meant like you said, that she was handling day-to-day -day stuff. Don was doing the other stuff, but knowing that everything that happened since then, you know, he basically put the blame on uh, him and Bob getting fired. Thanks to, uh, you know, <laughs> thanks to her, which she, she may have had something to do with it. I mean, my theory is that they wanted to get rid of uh, Lee because they're getting ready to go over to the U.S. And when you think about it, I mean, this is a sad reality, but uh, Lee, he looked like an older guy. You know, he, he looked like a 70s guy, we should yeah. say. He had the mustache. He had the whole, 
you know, very 70s kind of vibe to him. Now, Ozzy, he was probably the same age as Ozzy, if not maybe even a little younger, or maybe he, he had to be around the same age as Ozzy. But I think that they just wanted to make the band look younger. And I think Bob, they probably would have let Bob stay on. But, you know, when Bob objected and sort of raised a stink about Lee being let go, they just said, all right, well, forget it then. We'll get rid of you also. We don't want to deal with this. And, you know, then they get a young L.A. bass player in Rudy Sarzo. And uh, and really, that's the, been the formula for Ozzy's band ever since then, is, is that they surround Ozzy with young hot shot coming up guitar players and musicians. That's the way Ozzy's band is, was pretty much run from this, this point forward. You know, that's just how they, that's just how they went about it. And unfortunately, like you said, you know, you would think anybody would say, holy cow, we've had this incredible success with Blizzard. We've had this incredible success with Diary. You know, why on earth would anybody in their right mind break up that core, you know, it, it defies logic, but, you know, sometimes business takes precedence over <laughs> artistry and that's probably this situation here. And that's probably what happened. And uh, it's a very confusing time. I, I mean, I usually default to Bob. Bob seems to be the guy who kept the most accurate records of all these things, but History is usually written by the victors. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, Sharon, of course, gets her side of the story out. And it's just, it's all become so muddled. And, it, you know, this point in Ozzy's career, his whole trajectory, his whole imagery hasn't been shaped yet. You know, as we mentioned earlier, he's just coming into the Ozzy Osbourne, the madman, I'm crazy and all this stuff. And it hasn't been totally cast in stone yet. And really from this point on, Ozzy becomes, he, he blows, he breaks really big. He becomes a machine. He becomes a, a corporation, if you will, and, and, and a brand of sorts. And he just keeps getting bigger, bigger and bigger after this. But yeah, you have an amazing album like Diary of a Madman and Blizzard. And it's just like, why on earth would you break up this conversation? And like you mentioned, you know, Bob keeps coming back and he has this sort of on again, off again relationship with, with Ozzy. He comes back for Bark at the Moon. He leaves for the ultimate sin. He comes back for No Rest for the Wicked. He leaves and he's called back in at the last second for uh, No More, More Tears. Tears. And he, yeah. he's, he, he's, he leaves again. He's around a little bit at the beginning of Osmosis and then he leaves again. And that's the last that, that Bob, you know, no more tears would be the last time that Bob had any involvement with Ozzy. But yeah, it's like you said, I mean, it really depends on who's telling the story, but the whole thing is like a soap opera. And if anybody really wants to take a deep dive into this and all the facts and get away from the music and into the tangled legal web of everything associated with Bob Daisley, Lee Kerslick, and the Osbournes. I highly recommend that you follow the interview. Go, go to Bob's website, bobdaisley.com. And in the uh, index, you'll see Bob Daisley's history with the Osbournes. And from there, it goes on several pages. And he gets into very specific details about the timeline, who was doing what, this, the court dates, everything. He has a memory. It's like a steel trap. So 
you know, oftentimes you'll go on social media and, and invariably somebody will mention how much they like Blizzard of Oz or Diary of a Madman. And often there'll be, you can always count on one of the first three comments to be something like, well, it wouldn't be anything if it wasn't for Bob Daisley. And while that's true, the comments that generally follow are misinformed, you know, <laughs> yeah. straight, j- jumbling up the facts. And, and, and that, you know, is where a lot of people get their information too. A lot of people regurgitate things that they see on social media. It's, it's an easy way to, you know, I just happened upon it. I was looking up some Ozzy Osbourne stuff and all of a sudden somebody started talking about the legal wranglings of Lee Kerslick and Bob Daisley. And I was reading all that. So then, you know, that's where I get my facts, but I recommend that, you know, if you don't have the time to sit there and read the Bob Daisley book, which goes into much more, it goes into his entire career, not, not just his tenure in the uh, Aussie organization, although that's pretty significant, but his entire career um, for fact's sake. And also, um, uh, check out his website. There's a lot of information on that. And uh, bobdaisley.com talks about that. So if you really want to, like, know exactly. Dive deep into it. Yeah, for yeah. sure. That's, you that's, know, I mean, it's, it's I, I've always said, you know, and I still maintain it. We, we, we talk about this stuff when we do the podcast because I think it's important to get some of the background out of there and everything and and, and set the, the context for, for where this music was coming from at, at this particular point in time. But, you know, when it really comes down to it, I know, and I know you're we're, we're, we're I think we're the same age. When we were growing up, and we've talked about this on just about every podcast, where we were as kids when these records were coming out, and how we, there was no internet, there wasn't a lot of information, there wasn't a lot of background that was put out there to really distract us from the music or to set off arguments about things that were aside from the music. So when an album came out, we didn't know anything about who was writing what, uh, who was suing who, who was kicked out of the band, who came back into the band, who was managing the band. We didn't know any of that, and we didn't really need to. Um, and when the albums came out, you know, if it was by a group that we liked, like for, for me, you know, Ozzy or, or Maiden or Priest, uh, when the new Maiden album dropped after Diano was out of the band and Bruce Dickinson was in, I remember going to the record store and seeing the album cover, flipping it over and looking at it and being like, wait a minute, who's this guy? Where's the other <laughs> guy? But I bought it, I took it home and I loved it. You know, I didn't really get into like, well, you know, I don't have Paul Diano on it. And I know some people maybe a little bit older were caught up into that sort of thing, but you would, it didn't happen as much as it does now because there wasn't that much information out there. And really the, the only thing that was really important was getting the record, taking it home, listening to it and deciding whether or not you liked it based on what you heard, not on what was in the background, not what was on the internet or, you know, your favorite magazine that's all stuff that it, it's just superfluous it, it doesn't really it's not really that important but we're getting into this stuff now because it is relevant because a lot of people discuss it it's been all over the place it's been in books it's been on the internet you know it's been in magazines and it is a, an important part of this of the history of these two albums so uh, reluctantly, we're, here we are wasting all this time talking about this again, but it is a significant. Yeah, and what 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 brings people to the defense of Bob and Lee is when these albums were reissued uh, with bass and drums erased on them, and pretty yeah. much wow. universally, there was nobody 
that thought that was a good idea. Nobody except Sharon Osbourne. And when I mean only Sharon Osbourne, even Ozzy, which you could kind of say, all right, Ozzy, where were you in this whole thing? And if you didn't know about it, why didn't you? But let's just assume Ozzy didn't know about it till after it happened. Pretty much universally across the the world of of heavy metal and the press, and even people that uh, weren't metal fans, you would read an. I, I was I was reading articles about it in you know Rolling Stone or Time Magazine. You know these everybody was commenting on it. Like what a just a appalling, oh my God, disgusting man. move it was. So all that did was made everybody way more aware of what was yeah. going on with all this because Bob and Lee became very public about it. And, you know, understandably so, I, pretty much everybody then got into Bob and Lee's corner. I mean, it's, it's really like, man, talk about a unforgivable sin. I mean, they eventually went and replaced these things, but holy moly, I mean, these are albums that, you know, meant so much to so many people. And, to have something as as childish and as immature as that to happen just really drove people away from from the Osborne camp. And this wasn't too far off from around the time with the egg incident, Fire Maiden and yeah. everything. And it was just like, you know, this just seemed like a bridge way too, uh, way too far. You don't mess with something as as yeah. uh, sacred as this is to to rockers and metalheads and at the time when these things came out i remember people panicking like holy moly like i i'm never you know my my cd i my cd copy i just lost it of blizzard my original copy now i'm not going to be able to get another copy with the original base everybody was thinking like you'll never see the originals again and i mean they eventually did and subsequent reissues put the bass and drums back on them, but it was just it was just something absolutely unheard of at the time, and even still now, it's one of those like things that uh, you look back on it and it's just like wow, and that's that that brought all this stuff then because then Bob and Lee really came out and let their side of the thing uh, known, and it just caused everybody to it was just in the news it felt like on blabbermouth every other day there was something about it it just made it really public which is a shame because like you mentioned back in the day we just bought things and yeah there were magazines but the articles you were reading in hit parader and circus and even kerrang they were kind of fluffy oh my god they were just you know there was no substance to the artists were just talking about their tour and, and promoting the record there wasn't anything like the way we see things now so as young kids you just you you bought things you liked it you didn't get into all this background stuff and and unfortunately you know, it's sort of a cold uh, splash of cold water of reality that, you know, you hear these things now and it sort of ruins a little bit of your early dreams here when you imagine these bands all getting along and putting out this great yeah. music and, you know, high-fiving each other in the studio for having put out a great album. And then you hear all this stuff later on about how much drama there was and behind the scenes fighting and all this other stuff. It's really kind of sad. And one of the things we love about this podcast is, is that taking us back to those more innocent yeah. days when all you had to talk about was the music, you know, and maybe some of the other stuff like biting the head off a bat or something but even that stuff was 
you know, it, it was just, uh, it was way more innocent. It was way more of it was left to your imagination. And it was just more as a kid, it was just all about the music. It wasn't all this other stuff that went into it. And it's just a sad reality that it, this stuff is a business. And as kids, you thought that it was just all about the music, but as you got older and the internet showed up, you started to realize that, Hey, you know, it's, it was a business. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that was, that was definitely atrocious. And I don't think anybody, I don't know anybody that supported that or listened to those recordings and thought, ah, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> because it, it just didn't. I mean, there's nothing against Mike Borden and uh, Robert Trujillo as, as players. They're, they're both great players, but I mean, it wouldn't matter who they brought in. You know, you're, you're messing. I mean, for, for, for those of us who hold, you know, rock and roll, heavy metal, hard rock as, as a, a religion of sorts, this was a sacrilege. This was like desecrating our church. This is scripture. And you're coming in with a, a red marker and you're crossing things out and putting other things in. You just don't do that. You don't do that. And it was done. And it's like, not only was it offensive to the musicians involved, but it was offensive to the fans. Yeah, it was. It was offensive to us in the sense that, oh, they're just they, they don't they don't they don't matter. They, it doesn't matter what they think. They won't say anything. They'll just accept whatever we give them, and that's not true. You know, obviously, and, because it wasn't accepted. And in 2011, it was it was the original tracks were restored, but. Yeah, it was profoundly uh, atrocious to not only the musicians involved and the hard work that they put into it and the way that they played on the songs. I mean, there's so many signature, I'm sure you, you know, um, and, and as from a drummer's perspective, I know I can hear Lee's fills, but as from the bass playing perspective, I'm, you know Bob's, his, his riffs and, and his, his licks and everything are so essential to, to those songs and, and the way we've listened to them for, for many years before they decided to take those off and, and, and put, replace them with other guys. And it's like, wow. Yeah. It was, it was incredible, incredibly bad. One of probably the most legendary bad moves in, in rock. I don't think anything even equates to how bad that was. I don't think, yeah. you, know, you know, what it was, it was that, 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 okay, you guys have this feud going on in court and all that stuff okay, whatever, but it, it really felt like they took it out on the fans then. Yeah. It was like they dragged the fans into it. And then that's when it, it just crossed the line. It was like, you guys can fight all you want in court about over money, but when you start taking away, taking it away, taking it out on the fans, essentially get dragging the fans into it. It's just. Because that's who really suffers. You know, like you said, people were worried. Oh my God. I, well, I'd be able to get an original version of this. And of course, you could probably always find them used. And by that time, you know, eBay was in full swing or you can go to a, you know, your local record store or something. And there'd probably most likely be a used copy of Diary or Blizzard in CD or cassette format or whatever. So you'd, you would never, you'd never lose touch with it altogether. But yeah, I mean, to go in and buy a new copy? No, you couldn't buy it new with the original tracks. You know, they were all replaced. The new versions that you would find in the, in the record store were with these uh, dubbed in bass and, and drums. And it was, yeah, kind of scary. It's like, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on? 
you know, but yeah, there it was. And, uh, and I think that's also when Sharon Osbourne really started to get a lot of, a lot of criticism, a lot of people building up the reputation with the reputation was building up prior to that. Once this happened, Sharon was a pariah in the music and the heavy metal, hard rock community, you know? And uh, I mean, there's some people that support her and say, if it weren't for her, you know, we wouldn't have had Ozzy in the capacity that he was in and we probably wouldn't have had these records, which I don't think is true, but uh, certainly, I mean, I guess she was partly responsible for getting Ozzy to rally and, and helping him get his, his act together in order to be able to put these, you know, wheels in motion and get these records out. But I don't know. Um, I guess you had to be there to really, you know, authenticate that possibly, but for everything that she's done, uh, on the bad side of things far outweighs anything she could have possibly done on the good side of things. And this was really the turning point. This is what really made people aware of how bad that situation was. If somebody is capable of doing this, what, what won't they do, you know, <laughs> for their own, to move their own agenda along, you know? And, and it was, of course, it, it hit us as fans the hardest because it was an insult to us, as I've already said. It, it's like to think that we wouldn't be discerning enough to, to care or to notice a difference. Yeah. Incredibly insulting. Absolutely. Anyway, onward and upward. All right, let's let's jump into the album. So it starts with Over the Mountain. And as I mentioned earlier, I think you did too, hearing those triplet drum beats there at the beginning. Uh, the main riff in this is killer the driving, propelling nature of the riff. I love the lyrics in it. This is sort of Bob Daisley's, uh, you know, Bob Daisley's lyrics at its at its best here. The way he, uh, you know, uses like this uh, symbolism and uh, you know the different uh, imagery that uh, that he uses this. Uh, Fever of a breakout, breaking in me miles wide, people around me talking to the walls inside. Uh, I don't need no astrology. It's inside of you and me. You don't need a ticket to fly with me. Over and under, in between the ups and downs. I just love the lyrics on this. And Randy's guitar solo in this, when his guitar solo kicks in, he has that pick slide. When he does yeah. the, that riff and when it kicks into that like line that it just sounds so cool and when the band cuts out and randy's doing those fills and like the whammy bar thing and then the drums do the triplet thing to bring it back in it's just, oh man yeah. what an amazing it's what an so amazing perfectly album opener yeah, it's so perfectly orchestrated. And we've talked about this before. What Randy brings to these songs in the, in the form of these solos were songs within songs. And as gifted and as talented and as technical a player as he could be, he was always very tasteful. And, you know, even from a non-guitar player's perspective, I look forward to these songs and the, the solo parts. You know, there's there's some, some songs by certain artists where you get to the solo part and it's like, okay, Oh, ho-hum, you know, there's a guitar solo. But with these, it really, you know, it, it gets the adrenaline going and it's so well phrased and it's like a song within a song. Over the Mountain is just like a great album opener, you know, from the triplets in the beginning, uh, the riffs. And here's where you really start to hear the uh, difference in production value between Blizzard when 
to to cross-reference the album openers you know you start out with i don't know from blizzard of oz and you can hear that that same sort of excitement from the from the way that the, the symbol swells or whatever it is in the very beginning to when the riff kicks in hearing that for the first time was like wow yeah that's that's pretty exciting this takes it to the next level and just energizes it right with a shot of adrenaline with those drum fills and then the guitar is fuller it has more of a bite to it and um it works in the same fashion that i don't know does but here it just kind of injects it with a lot more uh enthusiasm um yeah it's a great album opener and uh one that they would continue to play throughout the tour. And I, I think they st probably still does. I mean, I think he's been playing it ever since. So, I mean, this is like opening of the album is definitely a classic Ozzy track over the mountain, for sure. Yeah. And I always liked uh, Randy, always overdubbed a lot of guitars. So, there's all these little interesting little things rhythmically happening. And if Bob's bass playing is is great it's just it's a great headphone album where you can just pick out all these little things going on <clears throat> all right then it goes into flying high again and uh this may be sort of acts sort of the way crazy train did on blizzard it's 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 melodic it's just kind of this is even more of a straight ahead kind of rock song than even uh you know uh crazy train was you know crazy train had that minor key sounding main riff that menacing main riff here it's it's, it's straight up rock and roll but it's yeah. but it's fun and it and it works ozzy's melody line or should we say lee's melody line is really great uh i remember reading uh here you know we make a lot of references to bob's book he talks about where he got the title for this from he had some old buddy that whenever he would talk to him, the guy would say something like, yeah, you know, Bob, one day we'll be flying high again. Yeah. He said he always remembered that line. I always thought that was great. And this is starting to, it also starts to play into, you know, this, this Aussie image, you know, I uh, got a crazy feeling. I don't understand, you know, mama's going to worry. I've been a bad, bad boy. Yeah. Uh, just this Aussie, the, 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 the rock and roll rebel, uh, we're going to say this with yeah. every song, but Randy's solo is great. I love the way the the drum beat in the beginning of the verse. It's just sort of like this bass and snare thing. Yeah. But it's like offbeat, like Bob's yeah. playing like this yeah. offbeat bass on Bob, boom, yep. boom. Like they're hitting on yeah. two and three when the guitar is hitting the main riff on one. So they have this sort of syncopated thing. And, but then it yeah. when it kicks in, mama's no worry. Like the whole band yeah. locks in, then it just gets really driving and, uh, Super cool, super cool. Yeah, it, it's a unique uh, rhythm, and uh, on, on you don't notice it. I mean, it's not distracting because to me, it sounds like it sounds like something you might hear on Back in Black. You know, it it sounds simple, but when you sit down and you try to play, especially from you know the drummer's perspective, you realize, oh wait a minute, now this is on the this is on the offbeat, you know. Uh, but the song itself has a really like very direct commercial almost pop rock kind of a sound but it was like uh <laughs> the song really was like a call to arms a rallying cry for the stoners <laughs> in, in in the scene you know it was like flying high again i mean you couldn't yeah. see Ozzy in concert the first time of course was for me was in 82 but then every subsequent time it seemed like the odor in the atmosphere <laughs> 
when this song, you know, was played, yes, it, it kind of changed slightly. I'm not sure why, but yeah. Uh, and it, <laughs> of course, that was sort of a, I guess, a celebratory thing. It was, it, this is definitely a, an upbeat, happy song. It's not dark. It does kind of occupy the same sort of space that Crazy Train does, except where the lyrics to Crazy Train were a little bit more thought provoking and a little bit more socially conscious. This is completely self-indulgent and fun. Fun yeah. rock and roll. Yeah. And, and, and the line, you know, you, you were talking about the, for the stoners out there, the daddy thinks I'm lazy, he don't understand, never saw inside my head. People think I'm crazy, but I'm in demand, never heard a thing I said. Said, yeah. said, said. <laughs> you know? Even again, affects his voice at the very end, almost like that little cartoonish mischievous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, the, and the whole like middle section too, uh, uh, what's the line, what's the... Uh, uh, I'm just blanking on that. Uh, if you could see inside my head, I can see it. Yeah. I can see it. <laughs> yeah. That's just great. And the way the song sort of goes out with, he just keeps repeating that flying high again. And it's like, I think an, an effect on the guitar to give it this sort of like yeah. swirling around kind of effect. So it's a great song that probably the, yeah, probably the biggest radio hit off this yeah. album the song that you'll still hear on classic rock radio off this album yeah i think for sure and like you said i mean we're going to go from song to song we're going to like say oh this is such a great solo by randy Rhodes. they're all great every every solo that randy does on this album is great uh but in particular i think this is my favorite randy solo it's just so melodic it just it fills the, the space up perfectly it adds to the song it lifts the song you you know I I don't I don't know but I don't think I think you'd be hard pressed to find anybody rock guitar legend that could do something that would be as suitable and brilliant as the solo that Randy Rhodes does on this um, without overplaying but to to the point where it's obviously shows a lot of talent and skill but it it's restrained in that it you know it serves the song. Um, you could have like a Malmsteen or maybe you could have a Schenker or George Lynch or something. Who knows what would have happened there. But I have a feeling it may not have been as tastefully done as the way that Randy did it. And yeah. So Absolutely. of all the solos on this album, this this is my favorite Randy Rhodes solo on this album. Finally. All right. Then we got You Can't Kill Rock and Roll. Maybe it's a slight deep cut of sorts on this record, but nonetheless, an amazing song mm. of the acoustic layered in acoustic guitars and in the intro there. Uh, love the sentiment of the lyrics as a young rock and roller, rock and roll being the, uh, you know, looked down upon by your parents and stuff like that. So you have this, this sort of, you know, this sentiment because rock and roll is my religion and my law. Yeah. I'll never change. You may think it's strange. You can't kill rock and roll. It's here to stay. Yeah. And I always love the, the, uh, the part in the song when it goes to looking through eyes of time, it's like there's Ozzy has like a lower voice in there, an octave yeah. lower and the higher voice. reflecting their stories untrue. Yeah, the lyrics in it are great. The, the mood of the song is really great. I love the way it, it fades out kind of on this thing and Randy doing like some kind of noises and stuff on his guitar, like a little outro solo thing. So a uh, really cool song that's it's sort of, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a deep cut on the record, but it just sort of slots really nicely here. You, you get the 
aggressive opener with Over the Mountain. You get the fun rocker with Flying High again. You get sort of the the more uh, the more uh, so slightly more held back, somber, a little moody and reflective. You know, you can't kill rock and roll, so it just flows it flows perfectly. Yeah, this song still gives me chills sometimes if it's at just the right volume and in the right mood. Many times as I've heard this, like I still get, you can still get kind of emotionally swept away with the, the way that this song sounds. It's just the buildup, um, the tone of Ozzy's voice, the, the sincerity that comes across, even though he didn't write the lyrics. And, you know, there's another one, of course, that Bob Daisley wrote. And, and you know, it, it's kind of telling, I guess, in a way, or foreshadowing the fact that the song is actually about, you know, getting ripped off in the music industry and his experiences, which were yet to really unfold. But to us as, as kids listening to it, yeah, it was sort of like our, our anthem, our, our poignant um, anthem of like being into this music and, and having, you know, it represent how much this music meant to us. And it, was, it, it hit a sentimental core, I think. I know at least it did with me. And, and that's the part that still resonates to this day. It does take me back to when I was 12. And, you know, the things that were a part of my world at that time that are so incidental now, and, you know, what was it, 40 years later, but still takes me back to that time. And, and it's, it's, it's beautiful the way that music can do that. So this is that song that has never gotten old. It still has every bit of the same emotional impact on me as it did the first time I heard it in 1981. Uh, beautifully composed, uh, perfectly arranged, again, solos. Everybody's on point with this one, you know, from the drums to the bass to the guitar to the way Ozzy sings it. I mean, it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't be as effective if it wasn't for the way that Ozzy sings it. It may be Bob's lyrics, but again, here's another example of Bob or Ozzy taking someone else's lyrics and really connecting with it and bringing it out into a way that makes it so, so effective. You Can't Kill Rock and Roll. Probably one of my favorite songs. Well, every song on this album is a favorite, but this is <laughs> this is up around the top two, three, you know. Yeah, because it, it hasn't, it, 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 again, it feels like a, you, you hear a lot of these songs on the radio now. And uh, so this one just feels extra special because it's one that doesn't get talked about. He never played it live. It's, you know, it's, so it's, it's sort of a, yeah, it's the same thing for me. I can really crank it up and it just feels like a real emotional song, something you can really dig into. Yeah. All right. Uh, Believer, uh, the cool, ominous bass line at the beginning, that riff when Randy kicks in there, love the lyrics, uh, Ozzy's delivery, uh, the spot in the song where everything sort of slows down. And you get the, uh, uh, I can't believe they stop and stare and point their finger doubting me. Their disbelief suppresses them, but they're not blind. It's just that they won't see, mm -hmm. you know, and then it kicks back in with the, yeah. uh, the main riff there. And I believe this, this also has that, like, uh, that sound that you heard in uh, Revelation Mother Earth, which I think is yeah. like a keyboard thing, you know, it's like it's uh it sounds like a voice but i guess it's like a keyboard or something i've never yeah it might be a vocoder or something like yeah. that but yeah you're right it does have that that sort of like that uh synth synthetic synthesized voice thing going on yeah 
kind of kind of creepy in a way, but suits the song. Yeah, it, it is kind of similar to Revelation, Mother Earth, in its its vibe, and especially in that little keyboard thing. Yeah, and the ripping solo from from Randy, it kind of uh, the way it builds into it, just uh, just amazing, and and an awesome like a side one uh, closer, and it and it just sort of. Uh, you know the way the song ends it's just it's just awesome too it's a very sort of unsettling uh vibe to the song and again it just man it just it flows so well when you're coming out of uh you can't kill rock and roll the way you can't kill rock and roll fades out and then this comes in and it's again each one of these songs has a little bit of a different feel and, and this is one especially believer that has a lot of atmosphere to it for me and the recording of this record I mentioned earlier the way it felt to me like it was a little bit more reverbed out and so everything has a little bit more uh depth to it and this really works yeah that 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 uh, recording quality uh, you know really bring comes out in this song for me and really gives it a spooky uh, spooky vibe that I love. <laughs> yeah, um, the memory I, I have, well, of course, you know, I have a memory of it in the, within the context of the album, but it wasn't one that I really connected with too much. It was like last song on the album. I was, I get about halfway into the song and I'm like, okay, yeah, it's cool. And I'd be ready to flip the album over. It's not that I don't like it. It's just that everything that came before was so so great and this one sort of just kind of winds down side one to me so it's not one of my it, it was it, it is I, I love the song but it wasn't really one of my initial favorites my main memory of this song was when i saw them i remember watching rudy because we were on rudy's side of the stage on the on the where we were sitting first level looking down from the side and i remember we were on rudy's side i remember him having this stance where he had legs apart and he was pull, putting his whole upper body into this going down and up and thrashing back and forth, up and down, starting the song out. And I just remember he pretty much did that the entire time. But it was you really felt what he was doing when he was playing that that bass lick in the beginning, you know, yeah. you know, and that yeah, I remember yeah. him playing that. And that was pretty exciting. And then after seeing it perform live, then it, it in, increased my appreciation for the song because I could when I was listening to it I can put that visual in my head while I listen to it um lyrics are cool um you know Bob Daisley manages to do something always that's kind of interesting and and what's funny about it is he narrates Ozzy's what would become Ozzy's image none of this was really none of the lyrics or, or none of the content was Ozzy's but he so perfectly personifies this image that was written by Bob in these lyrics, you know, flying high again, the mystic or uh, uh, over the mountain, the mystical, you know, astrological, you know, occultish side of the Ozzy persona, maybe uh, uh, flying high again, the, you know, the dabbling drug, uh, whatever you want to call it, side of Ozzy, you know, the madman that would when we get into side two, the last song, all this stuff builds into what people would assume was were Ozzy's words and the narrative to his his personality, which you know really wasn't. I guess it became that way. 
but uh, these were all from you know Bob's journeys along the road of life and things and like you mentioned you know flying high again was some of his experience with a, with a buddy of his and, and Bob's interest in uh, other religions and spirituality so believer ties into that that spiritual side of Bob's lyrical contribution and um, but it you know it, it does play into the whole Ozzy thing where this is almost like a precursor to doom metal whereas Sabbath was you know, had this kind of down, down a rock. I think they called it before it was known as doom metal vibe. This kind of followed in that tradition of like, you know, down tuned, heavy plotting weight weighted metal. And uh, yeah, so kind of carries on that, that savage tradition of doomy metal. Yes, it is kind of funny when you think about it that that Bob really had a hand in sort of shaping the Ozzy Osbourne yeah. <laughs> <you know, laughs> persona and everything. <laughs> so, all right, well, side two opens up with Little Dolls. This is another one that, you know, if you, you say a deep cut on this record, this would be one of them. <clears throat> I think the main riff is great. I mentioned earlier that I like the way Randy throws in little guitar fills, a little like he'll play the main riff, dan, 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 better, dan, dan, bam, you know, and he throws in a, these little squeals and stuff and these little, just little things to make the riff interesting. Like it, it, it's kind of a plotting riff. And if it was played that way, just repetitively over and over. But what makes it for me is Randy's, little doodads and squeals and runs and everything that he's constantly throwing in to sort of embellish the riff. Uh, the lyrics and the sentiment of it are fun, you know, uh, like a voodoo doll type of uh, type of thing. Bob's the rhythm of it is, is kind of quirky uh, and interesting. Again, Bob and Lee seem, seem to have this way of uh, coming up with you don't really notice it until, like you mentioned earlier, with uh, Flying High Again, unless you see, then when you sit down and try to figure it out and play along to it, you know, you realize like how quirky some of these lines are that like Bob was playing or that Lee was playing, but they totally work, you know, and that's the sign of great musicianship is, is you can have something interesting but it doesn't distract from the song. It still makes the song work. And interestingly enough, Randy would say that the solo that's in this song, which I think is a good solo, that it was really just a placeholder and he was supposed to come back and, you know, record a proper solo. And they just, they were in a time crunch because they had the tours already booked and everything. And he, he sort of, always said you know that solo I don't like that solo because it was really they just told me to play something to mark the space where the solo would be and I was supposed to come back and he and he never did but uh they're all great songs uh and uh this this one is is an interesting one because again it sort of feels a little bit like a deep cut it's one that doesn't get talked about a whole lot and yeah yeah it, it's a cool tune uh again it would it's not one of my favorites but you know even though it's not one of my favorites it's still i mean i love the whole album so it you know it's there I, the, the drum beginning is really cool you know like it's one of those things when you crank up and it just shakes shakes the whole house <laughs> at least the way that i play it um yeah and and, and lyrically it's it's cool because at the time that i was 
listening to this record when i bought this record i was really into watching like horror movies and reading horror comics and magazines and things like that so the, so the lyrical subject matter kind of tied in with that and i can really wrap my head around that sort of thing it definitely appealed to my psyche at that point in time and you know really let my imagination run wild with some of the bit the images that i could conjure up while staring at the inner sleeve which i often did you know when listening to records at that, at that particular time so yeah i mean it's it definitely takes on that uh fantastic more fantasy type horror thing that was associated with ozzy's image and yeah it's it's cool that uh it's cool that there is a song like that on here you know yeah, and unlike you, I guess if you forced my hand and if I had to pick my least favorite, I'll, I shouldn't say it that way. If I had to rank the songs, Little Dolls would be would be at the bottom, which certainly doesn't mean I don't like it. It's still yeah. still a great mm -hmm. song, but when you have an album like this, it's, it, it feels a little bit rushed, maybe, you know, and that maybe is confirmed by the fact that from Randy himself that, you know, they never really quite finished quite finished the song. Okay, and then it goes into uh, the great ballad tonight. Uh, I think I've said this before, but I'm, I'll say it now. I'm a sucker for Ozzy singing ballads. I think his voice lends itself to this sort of mournful thing. Bob's bass line at the beginning, uh, that yeah. melodic little descending line. Mm. Uh, the, the, the subject matter now back out on the street again it never rains unless it pours this sort of you know depressive sounding type of lyrics uh the way that it sort of changes in the chorus the fields of it you know a big chorus and uh the, of course the guitar solos are great but the outro solo on oh, this yeah. is maybe one of the greatest of all yeah. time and one of the greatest outro solos of all time the way this goes back there's a chills yeah it is it's absolutely it sends a chill up your spine and there's a point in it where he does this like randy used to do this thing where he would play with the toggle switch on his guitar so the sound would get get get, get like sort of cut in and out just briefly and it, just as it's fading out you can sort of hear him doing this and it's man yeah such an emotional solo uh one of the greatest solos of all time certainly one of the greatest outro solos and the way it just sort of fades out like that is just yeah it just sends a shiver shiver up your spine yeah it's a pretty simple ballad you know it, it's not as emotionally charged as as some of the other like you said i'm always a sucker for a nazi ballad too and there's some that are more emotionally have a more of a deeper emotional content something like maybe she's gone or from technical ecstasy or changes or something but um this doesn't quite have the same emotional content but i think what really makes it successful is that you know bob's bob's bass in the beginning those those little runs those little licks um the, the production here is is noticeably really on point sounds great um the way the song is arranged you know the verse chorus progression you know, bridge to the outro solo. It's just so perfectly arranged, uh, performed. It, it's just, it's a, it's a great song. And this is one where Bob tried to get, like, I think it was Ozzy had a starter line, just a kiss before we say goodnight. And Bob was like, yuck. 
<laughs> I don't want to write up a boy love, you know, boy girl type of song. Let me let me let me take that and let's 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 change it around a little bit, and make it a little bit more suitable for the former lead singer of Black Sabbath and the former bass player for Rainbow. And I think that was sort of his criteria all along for these two albums to write in that sort of mindset. Like, okay, people are going to expect something. There's a certain precedence that's set by, you know, the, the repertoire of these two particular musicians. And let's not disappoint people. Let, let's keep that personality in place. And some of the things that I think were, were going on, maybe in Blizzard was kind of on the fringe of that. But I think Bob kind of reels it in a little bit. And I think when he heard, you know, Ozzy and the melody, he had in mind for the for the line, just a kiss before we say goodnight. He said, nah, let me come up with something better. And of course he does. And it, it kind of paints a picture of, you know, it's like sort of like introspective lyrical type of thing that could apply to any situation, but definitely on a more melancholy mindset. And uh, yeah, it's cool. It's a great example of if this song is a very, at its core, a straightforward song. And in the hands of lesser men or mere mortals, mm. this would just be a stock type song. Yeah. But when you have Bob's bass line, like you mentioned, the lyrics, Ozzy's delivery, the amazing outro solo, the chemistry here within this band and within the band, the lyrics, you have what could have been just a stock ballad type forgettable number elevates itself to a much higher plateau. And for yeah. me, really, that is the chemistry of this band, the writing talent in this band, the specialness of all the players and everyone involved. And it's just all sort of coming together and it just it, it makes for you know it makes makes for a great song that like i mentioned in in the hands of others it, it wouldn't have turned out like this so a testament <laughs> to to you know this this group of players yeah that's a great point and i and i think that it, it doesn't necessarily depend on how great of a player you are i think most of it is channeled through the chemistry of these guys because if you remember this is around 96 and i think this is when <clears throat> the whole legal thing took got reached to the critical point um, with Lee and Bob and, and, and they formed that band Living Loud with Jimmy Barnes, who was a popular rock singer yeah, from Australia. Australian singer, yeah. Steve Morse on guitar, who's phenomenal. You know, I mean, the stuff he's done with the Dixie Dregs and <clears throat> a little bit of Kansas and now he's in Deep Purple and great player. Great band. And took a lot of the songs that, that Lee and, and Bob wrote and re-recorded them and uh, you would think, well, you know, these are the guys that wrote the songs. And Steve Morse, man, what a great player. And Gene Barnes has got a cool voice. You know, he definitely delivers. But it's not the same. Doesn't sound the same. Doesn't have the same vibe. And if, if those were the versions that came out instead of the Aussie versions, what a disservice that would have been to humanity. Because what we've got so much better. And it really is a testament to the the the, the, the chemistry between the members. Not so much the talent. Because there's plenty of talent in Living Loud. Plenty of talent in the Ozzy Osbourne band, but what puts it over the top is the chemistry, the way that they play together, the way that they build these songs together as a unit is that that's the magic that you know occurs in these songs. Yeah, and it's impossible to, to recreate it. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. And then of course the big fade out on tonight and 
S-A-T-O. This is one of these songs we've talked here about life before the internet. And in life before the internet, you were left to your own devices to try to figure out what things meant. And this is a good example of uh, maybe you could uh, compare it to NIB where everyone uh, would sit around and, and think oh, nativity in black. And I remember, you know, friends and, you know, S-A-T-O means ships away the ocean or something, you know, and everybody's trying to figure out what this means. And here are the explanation is just a lot more simpler. They couldn't think of a song title. So Bob just took Sharon Arden and Ozzy's then at that time wife, Thelma Osborne, and put that out. But here again, it shows you the magic of before you knew these things, your imagination just ran wild with this stuff. And, you know, the lyrics of the song are probably maybe my favorite lyrics on this record. I love the imagery of the I love the ocean, oceans and things like that. We talked about this on Mob Rules with Sign of the Southern Cross, how much I love that kind of imagery. And this has that, this has that uh, vibe to it too. This stormy day won't find me sinking, you know, uh, the, the feel of the song, the drum beat, the, the triplet like type of rhythm. Uh, Randy again with all those guitar like little fills and stuff. Uh, there's that one line where he goes, "These uh, no, that don't know." Where Randy plays like this high harmonic thing that goes along with Ozzy's voice. It's like, oh man, it is just so absolutely incredible. The intro to the song is is amazing 3000 sails on high are straining in the wind a raging sea below is this voyage coming to an end and the way the song ends with that dad and dad and yeah and it cues up perfectly to the song that follows oh man yeah talk about your your love it yeah the sequence um it, this was always one of my favorites, and I think it's definitely a deep cut. And I think we even mentioned this as a deep cut when we did our Ozzy deep cut video um, for the Lair of the Alchemist, I think it was. Um, yeah, I mean, I love the driving riff. Um, the, 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 the guitar tone is just, it's really like, it just cuts. It's, it's like what I love so much about when Randy would play heavy and it sounded like this, it was really exciting. He had so many different uh textures to his playing but when he hit this this vibe man it just it just cut right through me and i think it's probably my favorite guitar sounds of, of any yeah guitar player i mean i you know eddie van halen could certainly do it and get to that point but man the way that it sounds that that driving riff is just i love it i love the tempo love the lyrics and you're right in the beginning the way it vamps up into it with the swelling, whatever that is, keyboard or something. And then it goes, you know, scrapes the strings and then kicks right into that, that riff, man. It's just, it's phenomenal. Um, one, one of the highlights of the album. Um, to Now, the song title itself was, okay, so this is from Bob Daisley. S-A-T-L, not my title. Ozzy and Sharon changed it from Strange Voyage which had been mine, to S-A-T-O after Lee and I were ousted. I wrote the lyrics about how life can be a strange voyage and was inspired by, by a Buddhist text entitled A Ship to Cross the Sea of Suffering. The S-A-T-O part is explained in my book. Uh, 
I've heard a couple different things. This is directly from Bob, but I kind of recall what you said that when they were in the, the studio, there was like this, this thing going on between Ozzy was still married to his first wife. Yeah. He started dating or they started Ozzy and Sharon started getting romantically involved. And I could swear I heard Bob say at one point, at some point that the initials stood for Sharon Oz, Sharon Arden, Thelma Osborne. But apparently this is something he says changed after he left the band. So I don't know, you know, and, and like you, you know, we had uh, our ideas about what the acronym stand stood for. I always thought it made sense because of some of the lyrics you could pull from. To me, it always was like sailing across the ocean. S-A-T-O, because there's references to the sea and sailing and winds and things like that. So at any rate, uh, the lyrics are really cool. They're introspective. Uh, they leave it open for interpretation, which is cool. You know, I always welcome that sort of thing. So you can kind of make your own emotional or creative investment in the lyrics and personalize it, you know. And then, you know, this is one of the songs that kind of does that. But more than anything, it's just the, the driving force of the song and the way that it, in the sequence of the album, the, where it occurs is just like, in the way that it ends, perfectly sets up the last song on the album. And, uh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's amazing. Awesome. And that, that particular line yeah. I was thinking of was the one where he goes, what you've learned, what you've earned. And you can just hear Randy's guitar. He does this like high harmonic sound. It's like, what you've learned, what you've earned. And he just plays right along with it. And it's, oh, you're right. So talking about guitar sounds. Yeah, that main riff right there is just one of the greatest guitar sounds of all time. I mentioned that ending, you know, that sort of uh, delay ending. Gun, 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 gun. And then that the guitar intro for Diary of a Madman kicks in and it's just like quietly creeps in. Yeah. It's like, Oh, Oh my goodness, man. That is so cool. Now this, this intro was actually uh, taken from, and I'll have to look this up here Uh, while you're talking, I'll I'll look it up and see if I can find it. Uh, A classical guitar piece that, you know, it's, it's known that Randy was working you know, yeah, we, we talked about that. Car- Carmina. How do you pronounce it? Is it Carmina or is it Carmina? Uh, no, that's something different. Uh, Carmina Barana, that mm-hmm. intro that Ozzy uses. There's, there's he, mentions, a, he mentions in, in, in Rudy's book and he was explaining, he was driving Rudy to rehearsal. I mean, one of the first rehearsals and he was playing him some of the rehearsals and he said, yeah, I took this. This is one of the new songs we're working on. Um, I think he said it was going to be called Diary of a Madman. He's like, yeah, you know, I kind of, kind of took this part from Carmina Barana. So, but maybe there's something else that, that, you know, that came to light. But I remember the other day we was describing it as that. But I know that um, Welcome to My Nightmare, um, the album was also an influence uh, to the, for this song. And it's not so much, I always thought it was like the title track. And I'm thinking... I don't hear that. I don't hear the title track in Diary of a Madman, but I think it was when he said it was Welcome to My Nightmare. I think he was referring to the, the whole album. What I do hear is there is a bit of an influence of the song The Awakening and Stephen, or maybe The Awakening is a, is a side two, Stephen, that that more um, chilling horror kind of vibe that 
the album gets into, I can I can hear that in uh, in Dire of a Madman. It's not it's not like it's a ripoff or anything, but when you when you know the two things and then you hear them together, it's like ah okay yeah I can see how that would definitely be an influence. It's a really dramatic song, um, perfect title track. You know, I mean, it, it definitely, again, this is one of the things that kind of builds on that Ozzy Osbourne, is he crazy, the crazy madman persona that Ozzy really had nothing to do with developing, but, you know, obviously Bob Daisley did lyrically. The lyrics, according to Bob, were uh, something that was referencing his his mental health uh, at a particular point in his life. And, you know, en- enemies fill the pages. Are they me? was something where he felt he was becoming uh, somewhat antisocial and was blaming other people for things that were going on in his mind, but then kind of came to a recollection of, well, maybe it's not them, maybe it's me. But the, uh, the lyrics to this are completely Bob, and he presented the idea of calling it Diary of a Madman. And he was aware of the Vincent Price film, the same name, which I think only added to Ozzy's interest in using that as the, as the title. But when he presented it to Ozzy, Ozzy was like, oh my God, that's great. Yeah, I love it. Go with it. But the way, again, here's another example of Bob Daisley's lyrics, Ozzy singing them, presenting them in a way that's completely effective, connects with it. You believe that this is Ozzy in like some sort of a confessional state of mind. Um, developing this, you know, madman persona that he was so, you know, known known for being. And, yeah, uh, yeah, it, it just works works so well. And, and again, I mean, here we just keep going over the, some of the same points. It's another thing; it's the chemistry, um, the way that Bob's lyrics were presented to Ozzy, the way Ozzy could sing Bob's lyrics and make them so uh, effective and convincing that they were his, you know, and, and it's ultimately what you, what you want, you know, I mean, it, you don't want the lyrics that you're presenting to the singer to sound like they're not his, you know, even though he, that singer is not responsible for writing them, you still want it to come across as though he's singing them in a way that's convincing. You want the singer to take ownership and to present them in a way that sounds sincere and, you know, from, from, from their voice. And it does. And that's, you know, another, again, another testament to the, to the chemistry here. Uh, Randy's guitar, you know, fits the vibe, creates the vibe really that everything kind of floats on top of, but it, it really is, it's solely dependent and it's solely contingent on that, that vibe that Randy builds with that creepy, you know, horror movie kind of soundtrack, classical, neoclassical, I guess you could say. Yeah. Guitar thing that, that, that is, is so much a part of this song that we get into the strings and the choir and everything. It's just, it's bombastic, man. It's effectively dramatic in the way that it should be. There's, there's nothing that misses the mark. It is perfectly on point. Um, the highest point of Ozzy's solo career from the beginning until the present time, this is, this is the highest point. This is the high, high watermark. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't get any better than this. I would agree. The name of the piece is Leo Brower, Etude Number 6. And Etude is a sort of like a practice piece for a musician. 
And I'll tell you a funny story. Basically what it is, is it's the first part of the do, 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 all that stuff. It's not the down, 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 not that. It's basically everything up to that. When I was in school, I was a music major in school and we used to have recitals every week where students would get up and play. And there was a classical guitar majors at my school and a, and a kid got up and played this <laughs> and so he's basically playing the diary of a madman intro and i'm like in the crowd like yeah 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 like i know what's going on i don't know if anybody else yeah. there was like one or two other kids that were in the heavy metal that caught it but it's basically lifted for the most yeah. part note for note from this uh leo bauer i guess is uh, how it's brower uh, etude number six and being that randy was studying guitar this is a well-known uh like people who are studying classical guitar it's something that you know early in their studies they would play something like this mm -hmm. but uh it's it's super cool and like you said i agree with all your points on this uh here here again we have bob and lee doing this syncopated rhythm underneath the verse i remember reading uh that this was one like you like i think you mentioned that they worked up the three of them and then recorded it and presented it to ozzy yeah. and ozzy <laughs> responding to this who do you think I am? Weird timing and everything, saying something like, well, you know, what do you think this is, Frank Zappa, yeah. or something like that. But they're like, no, 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 no. It's 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 Here's gonna, where you're work. gonna it's gonna work. Yeah. Uh the lyrics are amazing. Bob talks about, like, like you mentioned, you know, uh, it's almost a little bit of a personal thing uh with with Bob describing some of him him having uh, some episodes in his life where and I, you know, he, he felt like he was losing his mind, but it totally fits into the whole Ozzy uh, persona thing. Uh, the whole, the, the spot in the song, manic depression befriends me, hear his voice, sanity now is beyond me, there's no choice, you know, yeah. and the spot in the song where everything sort of drops down and there's like that military snare yeah. drum and it's really like, in the distance and just has so much crazy atmosphere to it i i had to do a little tribute to it uh, in my my old band sinister realm we had a song message from beyond and there's a middle section in there that i had to throw that you know darren you played on that song uh, i had to throw that little military snare drum in the yeah. acoustic guitar thing i mean it's a total tip of the hat to to this song because again it's just one of my favorite songs of all time and then when the choir comes in at the end the, the choir at the end is very reminiscent of carmina barana and i've read that that's where that vibe came from and that main riff the down 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 reminiscent of sure. carmina barana but the way that whole thing just just goes out is oh man the strings and the way it builds and the ending la 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 you know just that that big chord it's so epic it's so amazing and when you put it in the context of history that this would be the last thing that we would hear from from randy rhodes which i guess yeah. is something we can transition transition into now uh you know it i've said this that I discovered Black Sabbath after Ozzy was out of the band. So as much as I loved it, 
Ozzy's solo band, I felt like I was there at the beginning. Like yeah. I was part of this. This was my team. I'm here f- from the start here. Randy was my guitar hero. He's the guy I discovered. I, I've known him since his first album. I couldn't say that with Richie Blackmore, or Tony Iombi. You know, I wasn't there in the 70s. But this, I was there. And Randy was my guy. I had every any time I could get any kind of picture of him out of a magazine, I cut it out and hung it on my walls. And I'll just never, I, this is another one of those frozen in time moments. I know, in fact, I, I looked uh, March 19th, uh, which I believe is the date uh, that Randy died, uh, was a Friday in 1982. So it would have been a Saturday morning because I can remember getting up and my dad was getting dressed, you know, Saturday morning, he's, he's getting ready. And I come walking into his room and he said, you really like, you know, you like Ozzy Osbourne, right? And I'm like, yeah, he's like my favorite. And he goes, there was a plane crash. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, did Ozzy die? That was my first thing. Did Ozzy die in the plane crash? He goes, no, no, Ozzy didn't die, but it was the guitar player and somebody else and, and the pilot. And I just remember like, oh, because this is before the internet. So I'm sure it took a day or two for this to hit the news. And this wasn't, we didn't have a 24 hour news cycle back then. And I just remember my heart just sinking because I was like, Randy was my special guitar player. And to this day, I mean, it's, it's something that's one of the biggest tragedies uh, I still reflect on it. Uh, I've mentioned to you, Darren, that I live about seven miles from from where the accident happened i've driven you can't get to the house you can you can see it from uh it sits off of a main uh, main road you have orlando isn't it it? uh no leesburg florida which is about an hour north of orlando and this and the story goes i mean this is this is another story that has been told so many times and there's a lot of people guessing and speculating whenever you have a tragedy like this it's very hard for people to accept so people want to try to come up with some sort of story around it uh but the 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 bottom line for for people who who may not know the uh the band was supposed supposed to play in orlando they were playing like a festival in orlando with foreigner and a bunch of other groups and the uh, place where the accident happened, it uh, was called the Flying Baron Estate. It's very common in this part of Florida for people to have lots of property and they will put a, a airstrip, basically a spot for people to land small private planes. This is sort of a common thing around here. So that's what this place was. It was a place for people you could land your plane here, your, your small plane. I think they had a couple small planes there that people could take off from private planes and stuff. It wasn't a commercial uh, place and to open to the general public. The place was also, uh, they rented tour buses. And as they were traveling through, there was something that needed to get fixed on the tour bus. So uh, Andrew Acock, who knew this place, I guess, had been to this place before, said, let's stop here on our way to Orlando. I'll get the parts or whatever I need to fix the bus. 
they do this. Uh, ACOC is a pilot or was a pilot. His uh, pilot license at the time had been suspended. Uh, a Andrew Acock takes up Don, uh, Don Airy, keyboardist Don Airy. They go up and they circle the, the house a few times and land. Don Airy convinces uh, Randy and their hairstylist, uh, whose name is Rachel Youngblood, Rachel Youngblood uh, to go into the plane. They get up in the plane. They're buzzing the tour bus. And, and one at a time, so they uh, fly close to the tour bus, the wing hits the bus and it spirals out of control and slams into the house. And everyone is, of course, uh, you know, killed on contact. Of course, uh, you know, over time, when you have a senseless tragedy like this, people want to think, why did this happen? I, people still asking this question to this day. This is something that I've read and researched you know, endlessly. There's all kinds of stuff you can read on the internet. The, the, probably the most common thing you hear people say is, is that Acock, uh, he, had his, he had picked up his uh, ex-wife or his current wife or something, and they were having some sort of falling out, there was bad blood, and that Acock saw his wife standing outside the plane and drove the plane towards her. Yeah. Most people uh, that were there, that's been refuted, that, that they just didn't think that was the issue. Other people say that Acock shouldn't have been up there. His license had been revoked. He was actually in an accident uh, where I believe somebody was seriously hurt or maybe even killed. I, I don't know that for sure. I don't remember, but uh, his license was suspended, but that doesn't mean that he did it. Does, you know, it's just like if you lost your driver's license, that doesn't mean you, you forget how to drive a car. Right. Uh, but another common uh, uh, theory is, is that Rachel Youngblood, the hairdresser, had a heart issue that she could have possibly had a heart attack, according to Don Airy. She was sitting in the front seat of this plane, and the plane was like a uh, student driver car. It was a plane that people used to learn how to fly. So it had a brake, a break. it had controls on both sides of the, of the plane, I guess, is what, what people say. And some people theorize that maybe she had a heart attack yeah. and stepped on the brake or something went out of control with the plane. But, but either way, it was a sad tragedy. Randy supposedly didn't even like flying and, you know, he wanted to go up and take pictures to, to, to show his mother of, cause it's pretty open in that area that this happened. It's a big sort of open, open area and everything, but nobody knows for sure. And it's, it's one of the, you know, greatest tragedies, tragedies in heavy metal. And it's something to this day that you can't help but sit back and wonder what, what it could have, what could have happened if, if Randy was around, you know, longer. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, there are, there's conspiracy theories involved. And I guess when you get this far into something that's so tragic, you know, people's imaginations are going to run wild and they're going to apply certain theories to things. And, you know, maybe it might be legit, maybe it's not, but we'll never know. Um, but yeah, the, the thing about the pilot's ex-wife or current wife or whatever, and, and then there was the theory about, I think, I don't know if it was Don Airy. Don Airy actually witnessed 
the crash happening and I, I think he was well he didn't talk about it for a while but when he finally opened up about it he said that he could see something going on in the cockpit there was some kind of a struggle or some interaction going between randy and the pilot or something and and again i i you know i don't know i, I read that somewhere i don't know if it's true I, I didn't hear it directly from i didn't see it quoted directly from don but they they said that don airy supposedly said this who knows mm-hmm. um the fact is that you know randy was killed and that's a horrible tragedy he was talking about leaving the band prior to that but i don't know if that was actually going to happen i i think that we probably would have ended up with another record with randy on it i think it would have been bark at the moon there was already plans there was always there was already a song or two that i think was in development at that point um I think they probably would have done one more album with Ozzy, and I think that that album probably would have been Bark at the Moon, and I think it probably would have been a lot better than what it, it ended up as. It's one of my... A lot of people love Bark at the Moon, and I've said this before. It's it's uh, one that I have a hard time connecting with, but I think that having Randy on that album and some of these songs... Now, some of the songs wouldn't have been present with, with Randy, and it wasn't until Jake brought some ideas into it, so it would have been a completely different album, but I think that... It would have continued in the tradition and the vibe that was set forth in on Blizzard and, and Diary to move into a third record. I think it would have been phenomenal, but we'll never know. Yeah, um, and it's it's. Uh, I had a chance to meet Randy's mother. Uh, this would have been in the early '90s. I was in LA on a whim. I looked up the music school that Randy used to teach at, and his mother answered the phone and said, "What are you doing tonight? Why don't you stop on by?" And she was gracious, gracious enough to spend a few hours with me talking about answering any questions I had and just talking about Randy. And one of the things that came up in conversation was about what his intentions were towards the end, you know, before he died. And I remember her telling me that, you know, he was very serious about uh, studying classical guitar and he, uh, he had told her to get information. She, uh, Randy's mother had graduated, I believe was from like the uh, UCLA, uh, University of California. Uh, and uh, he had told her, he, she had gotten information to a bunch of different schools for him, but he had told her, put the wheels in motion, get the application, tell me who I got to fill it out and hand it into. So she, according to her, I mean, there certainly could have been one more album, you know, but I don't think it would have been more than one more album. I mean, who knows? Nobody knows no. what, what, could have, what could have happened. But he was certainly that whole thing about him wanting to leave and study classical guitar uh, was confirmed to me, you know, by, by his mother and that he was, no. it wasn't just kind of like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. It was get the paperwork, get it in motion you know, tell me who I need to send it into yeah. and that kind of thing. He wanted to go to the school that his mother had, had graduated from and everything. So, yeah, it's, it's one of those sad things when things like this happen, people want to try to, you know, when you, when you have a senseless tragedy, you want to try to put some sort of, some sort of meaning around it. And unfortunately, you know, it's just, it, 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 it's a tragedy and uh, it is. Yeah, and it's it, it was one of those, me as a young rock and roller, 
just getting into music and everything. It was the first one that I, I experienced. I mean, Bon Scott had died and Jimi Hendrix had died. And I love these people, but that was before I got into them. Yeah. And when Randy passed, it was, it was like, whoa, whoa, this isn't supposed to happen. It's like, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and to, and to compound it, it wasn't like some death by misadventure. He was out partying and something like that. It was just sort of this, this tragic accident. And again, at that time, you didn't get inf- information. It was very slow to come out. You didn't know. I heard about it from my dad who probably saw it on a news report or something. And then yeah. I started seeing it, of course, in the magazines and everything. And I remember thinking like, maybe he's confused. Maybe it's, you yeah. know, something else. And somebody didn't. And I, then you started seeing it immediately in the magazines. And I even think MTV was out by then. So MTV probably reported it. I probably heard it on there, but yeah, just, just, you know, just, just so sad, but it makes these two albums, Diary of a Madman and Blizzard of Oz, it, it makes them all that more precious, uh, you know, to me because it's, it's all we have for, yeah, it's what the last things we have from Randy. So, uh, you know, an amazing, I'm, I'm just grateful for these, these amazing and for me, life-changing, yeah. Changing albums. At least we have this, you know. Yeah. Great Absolutely. stuff. <clears throat> All right. Well, uh, there we go. I think we, we, we went into this one and uh, what can we say? It's, it's uh, like we said with Blizzard, these, these two albums mean a lot to us. So uh, we had no, we enjoyed uh, pouring our hearts out on, on this yeah. one. Uh, any final thoughts on Diary of Mad Men? I do. And if you can just bear with me <laughs> for a little while longer, I'd like to take this right up. I, I, and I think what we're doing with this podcast is we're, you know, of course, it's it's the subject matter is Black Sabbath. But they're also going into, you know, former members of Black Sabbath. And of course, the most significant former member of Black Sabbath is Ozzy Osbourne. So we're taking this into the historical context of what was going on at this time. You know, Black Sabbath does Heaven and Hell. Ozzy does uh, Blizzard of Oz. Um, Black Sabbath does Mob Rules, Ozzy Osbourne does Diary of a Madman. So we're going to continue that. At least you and I have talked about that. And so the next thing I think we're going to do, maybe it might be Live Evil, or could do Live Evil, Speak of the Devil, two record episode thing. But to take this, so we've, we've talked about it. So we, this band ends with the death of Randy Rhodes. To move forward you know, to take it up to speak of the devil. Uh, and, and the reason I want to bring this up is because I love this, this story so much. Um, and I really hope that at some point there's, there's a movie or, or something that's done tastefully because there's so many of what I've read and, and it's owed mostly to doing this podcast, really taking, you know, deep dives into the history of, of what was going on at the time, um, and Ozzy, predominantly Ozzy's life and, and, you know, the formation of this band and everything. It's just, and maybe there is a movie that's planned, but I just hope that they do it in a way that isn't centered solely around Ozzy's relationship with Sharon, because I think that's probably the least interesting part of this whole thing. Randy certainly is a central character. Uh, I'd love to see, you know, Bob and Lee represented in some way. I, I'd like to see more of the Ozzy dynamic with the musicians that were responsible for making these records. And so after Randy dies, 
you know, they, they take a little bit of time, not, not very long, but you know, yeah. so much go on. They approach Bernie Torme, of course, has a history with Jeff Records, as most people do, that are associated with the band around this time and the management. Bernie Torme agrees to do it. Uh, he agrees on a sum of money. He's not thrilled about it, but he needs to work. He does it. He realizes that he's coming into a really strange situation. The band is mourning the loss of Randy Rhodes, but he agrees to do it. He does maybe a handful of shows on the East Coast. Um, you know, they, they take him backstage and, and, you know, Randy's clothes, his stage clothes are there, uh, some of which uh, Bernie actually wears on stage. Um, so in order to keep things moving along, they hire Bernie Torme, who agrees to do this for, for a sum of money. Once his obligation or the, his commitment is fulfilled, he's out of there. Done. I've done it. I'm cool. <laughs> Best of luck, guys. He again says Oz is very personable. He's a, he's, a, he's a good guy. Management side of things is a little squirrely, but I like Ozzy. So there again, there's another, you know, credit to Ozzy's personality and, and, and his character as a person. So that concludes Bernie Torme's tenure with the band, as short as it is. Enter Brad Gillis. And I think Brad Gillis, man, he deserves a lot of credit yeah. for being a, as great a guitar player as he is and in, in overshadowed by, I guess, his band Night Rangers, not really a heavy metal band, more of an AOR band, I guess. I personally like Night Ranger. I especially like the first three albums. Beyond that, I, I kind of lost interest in them. But Brad Gillis was playing in the L.A. area. I mean, if you know any of this, I'm a little sketchy on this. But I'm getting to a story that I really like and I really want to tell before we end this episode. But I'm a little sketchy on this. But I, I, I believe that Brad Gillis is playing in and around the L.A. area in a band called Ranger, which would later be called Night Ranger. But at this point, it's Ranger. And he's playing some Ozzy songs as part of his band set. Somebody hears it. I don't know if they recorded it or they just tipped David Arden off. David Arden goes... Or maybe it was Pat Thrall's brother. Pat Thrall was in uh, Pat Travers' band. I forget what the name of his brother is. But somebody notices, here's Brad Gillis playing these songs and thinks he's a ripper. They're looking for a permanent replacement for Randy Rhodes. Obviously, they have Bernie Torme, but he's out. So now they need someone else to step in. A tape comes across David Arden's desk. David Arden approaches Brad. I don't know how. Phone call, maybe. Somebody hooks it up. Gets Brad to come down for an audition. Of course, it's you know the usual cliche. Ozzy calls him. He can't believe who he's talking to, or maybe it's Sharon. Whatever. Here's the part that I love, and here's the part where when I think about them making a movie, I'd really love to see this scene. So Brad goes to where Ozzy is and checks into the hotel, and he goes to the guy at the front desk, and he says, "Hey, my name's Bradley Gillis." Uh, I have a reservation here. He looks it up. He says, no, you don't. <laughs> oh, okay. I need a room. You know, I'll sell you a room. So he pays for the room himself. It's somewhere like $185 or something like that. He only has $200 on him. So that's all his money is in this room. There's a lot riding on this situation. And he's already spent most of his money. Goes up to his room. He gets a phone call. 
and I believe it's Ozzy, maybe it's Sharon. Somebody calls him up to the room. Now, while he's in there, he's he's playing, you know, he's warming up some of these songs that he's going to present to Ozzy. Pretty much already has the gig because they're under the under the gun anyway. They need somebody to continue this tour. They don't have a lot of time to audition a lot of people. So they've already heard enough where they're pretty confident that Brad's going to be their man. But to fulfill the formality aspect of, of this whole situation, he has to come in for an audition. He comes in, he goes to the suite where Ozzy is, knocks on the door, double doors. They open up, road manager opens up, invites him in. He's looking around. He sees a lot of rocker dudes standing there, obviously people that look like musicians. He's assuming that he's arriving for an audition where there's other musicians involved. Walks into the room. He could see that there's like kind of a party atmosphere going on. And he says, well, how long before my audition? How long before I audition? And I see all these other guys here like, oh, well, they're not they're not musicians. These are just press people. These are press people and people for the media and things like that. He's like, no, you're the only one. So let me, let me get Ozzy. So he calls Ozzy over. Ozzy invites him upstairs. And here is where it gets really interesting to me. I, I just love this. I can just visualize this in my mind. If, 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 you, if you can take in the whole atmosphere, the, the visual of this situation, walks into the room and there's a party going on in this hotel suite. Everything you'd expect, probably, you know, all kinds of accoutrements going on, little, you know, huddles over here, rockers everywhere, people walking around and it's looking like, you know, a typical rock and roll type of lifestyle situation. Goes up to the room, Ozzy's room, and he's sitting there. Brad's on the bed. Ozzy gets in front of him, legs crossed, sitting there. Just these two guys in this room. Ozzy says, Brad, what do you want to play for me? He's like, okay, well, let's uh, let's do Flying High again. He starts playing in front, Flying High again. He doesn't have an amp with him in the room. He's playing the guitar electric guitar without an amp he's just playing it and he hears Ozzy start to sing the melody and he kind of gets like you know it gets a little bit of a chill because here's that voice you know and he's playing it. and they go through a couple songs and, and it's just him and Ozzy and I just love this and he, Ozzy says well you've got the gig if you want it and he's like well yeah sure and he goes stand up and Ozzy brings him in for a hug and he says he says help me help me Bradley I'm counting you help me get through this and he said, I'll do the best I can. And I just love that so much because it just shows the more human side. You know that yeah. Ozzy was struggling with the loss of Randy. They were close. They had a relationship. And just the fact that it wasn't a rock and roll setup. You know, Ozzy's not sitting where somewhere in a room, you know, face down on a table and someone else is auditioning. This is what I thought was really interesting. And I think people sometimes have the wrong impression of Ozzy, or maybe it's the right impression, but it's not necessarily fair to assess that across the board. But I love the fact that it's just Ozzy with Brad and then this moment that they have where Ozzy brings him in in an emotional way and is hugging, says, Bradley, help me get through this. He has to He has to complete this tour. This is part of the business. This is the, un yeah. the you know, the business won't stop because of an emotional situation. There couldn't be any more of an emotional situation than this. The loss of your, your bandmate, your friend, the person you've written songs with and you've been living with essentially for a year, a couple of years now. And, but the, the machine won't slow down. You've got to keep moving.
And, and I love the fact that there is this emotional human aspect to this situation. From that point on, I saw when I saw the Diary of a Madman tour, it was with Brad Gills. Brad had only been in a band maybe a month or so, something like that. I think uh, what was we're on the East Coast. So Bernie Torme had just finished his portion. And I think Brad only maybe had a couple of shows prior to the one that I saw. But he came out with full confidence. He knows the songs. It's not I mean, he can just he just did it. And there was nothing tentative about it. I mean, watching him on stage and then when you watch um you know, the Speak of the Devil concert, the, the the home video thing, and you see the way Brad plays, and then you listen to Speak of the Devil. And that's another thing. When we get into that, we'll get into the fine points of that and, and, and how, what an amazing, what, what a testament to the amazing talent of these musicians that Ozzy's involved with when we get into that. But up to this point, the way that Brad stepped in, took over with confidence, finished the tour, and allowed things to continue in the way that they needed to in order to fulfill contracts and you know all the other things that are associated with the business side but i just love this emotional situation that occurs within all this and like i said i really hope that there's a movie that can accurately depict some of these things there's somebody that can write it there's so much going on yeah. at this time but somebody that can organize some of the more important things and present it in a story that really you know, reflects the, the, the human side of, of this situation with the musicians and, you know, Ozzy and, and, and Bob and Lee and, and especially Randy and have an appearance by Bernie Torme and, and the way that he talks about coming into the situation and seeing the emotion that was in all over everyone's faces. And, and it was just like, it was awake. Every show was like awake, but then they had to turn it on. And deliver an energetic performance because the people that were there weren't there for a wake. They were there for a rock and roll party. The dynamic that existed during this time is, is really interesting too. And I would love to see this into some sort of a docudrama movie, whatever. And for it to be presented in the way that I think it really is most relevant. And that's the human, human emotional side of this thing. So, yeah. That, that would be amazing for sure. Yeah, and, and it's sort of Brad. He's sort of the forgotten guitar player in the history yeah. of Ozzy in some ways. I mean, it, people who, who know Ozzy realize the contribution that he that he made to the band with Speak of the Devil album, which a lot of people do like and which we will be discussing. <clears throat> but also, you know, he was, he was probably the perfect guy to, to be there at that time because his personality seems to be very down to earth and you know, an easy to get along with uh, type of guy. And he, he was probably the perfect guy to come in at that time when everybody in the band was very fragile. Ozzy was, Rudy Sarzo talks about, I mean, Rudy Sarzo would leave not too long after Brad <clears throat> or after Brad was in the band, you know, Rudy, uh, Rudy would leave because again, yeah, everything that they had gone through with, uh, the, with the passing of Randy and everything. So yeah, that would make for an amazing movie, you know, hopefully an amazing scene uh, for sure. You know, there is a clip of Ozzy on the David Letterman show just like a few days, so a week after uh, Randy had passed. And you can sort of, when you were talking about that, I was thinking about that that uh, David Letterman clip where you can just, Ozzy just has a deer in headlights look on his face and he's putting on a, he's he's doing the best he can to get through the interview but you can just see that his his mind is, is yeah. just somewhere else so 
All right. Well, we will be getting into, you know, we will be getting into live evil. We're going to get into speak of the devil. So we were looking forward to, to discussing uh, those two great live albums. We're, we're going to talk about it. We may put them together as a two for one episode. We'll see. We may split it up. Who knows? You got to wait around, uh, <clears throat> wait around to find out here. Uh, but we do appreciate everybody out there for listening. Uh, thank you for, for listening, following us, comments that we get and everything. We really do appreciate this. We enjoy yeah. <laughs> going uh, in depth into all these albums that mean so much to us. So thanks again, everybody out there. And uh, we'll see you again really soon. Thank mm-hmm. you.